Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. I just felt the immense power that he had. I mean, the way I've described it is, it was like a five-year-old holding on to Hulk Hogan. That's just how big this man was. Hulk Hogan? He was very large. Very powerful man. You're a pretty big guy. Yeah, I'm above average. So you try to grab him, but you feel that force. Yes. And then as I'm holding him, I see him coming back around with his left hand. And it's in the shape like this, and it comes in through the window and just a solid punch to the right side of my face. But you're still sitting there figuring out, how do I get out of this? Yes. I mean, the next thing was, how do I survive? And 
that time, I gave myself another mental check. Can I shoot this guy? You know, can't legally can I? And the question I answered myself was, I have to. If I don't, he will kill me if he gets to me. The reason that this country was militarized over the last two weeks was not because of what we are going to do, but what the folks who have control of the apparatus feared we might do. Is this the time when we have decided that's enough? And on the threat of that, they mobilized the National Guard in Missouri. Understand what happened in Missouri last week. Governor Nixon said, I'm taking charge of the National Guard. If you understand your history, when Orville Faubus in Arkansas refused to do it, Eisenhower sent the federal federalized the National Guard and sent them into Little Rock High School in 1957. Yeah, yeah. When Ross Barnett went to an Ole Miss football game the night before James Meredith integrated the University of Mississippi and said segregation forever, Kennedy had to nationalize the National Guard. What Nixon was doing was per- making sure that he'd have control of the troops and Barack Obama wouldn't. I'm not even going to trust that this Negro won't go off script because he might decide that this one is enough. But you heard Mr. Trail tell you, and you heard Brother Wayne, that what we heard tonight was not a surprise. Now, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this, but let's be very clear. When you heard Bob McCullough, the prosecutor, say that there is conflicting testimony from witnesses and that the evidence, the material evidence, is inconclusive. What you heard, Ms. Rutel tell you this, what you heard were two issues of fact. Issues of fact are to be decided by juries. That means that what you heard tonight was a man tell you, and Marcus and I were talking about, we're talking about this before y'all came. What you heard was a man tell you, we have reason to charge this man, but I mounted a case defending him to the grand jury. He laid out the defense. He basically said, if you understood what he said, he started by saying the law has been followed. He then slipped in the fact that no bill would be returned, no indictment, and he spent the rest of his comments indicting Mike Brown. (laughs) Let's be clear. The United States, I've spent my entire adult life studying this, and the only reason I'm at this university is the only reason you're here is what's going on right now. Otherwise, you should just withdraw and go to another school, particularly those of you who are incurring a lot of debt to be here. There's no reason to be at Howard other than what we're doing right now. Let's be very clear. Very clear. The United there is no such thing as a perfect society, and there is no such thing as a guarantee that a society will exist. The United States of America is a settler colony. Please understand, this isn't a question of opinion. The United States of America was founded in consecutive acts of violence. 
one of which will be commemorated on Thursday. Please understand, the reason you're not going to school for this entire week is that one of the rituals of this country is to continuously sanitize the acts of violence upon which it was founded, including dispossessing the residents of this land of their land. That's what Thanksgiving is. We thank God for taking this land from these people. Now, if you want to be a part of that, that is your human right. But I'm going to tell you right now, a settler colony lives in perpetual fear that it will be destroyed. Yes, come on, come on. The act of bringing the African to this settler colony sowed into the fabric of this colony the seeds for its transformation. I didn't say destruction, but sometimes you got to tear up to build back up. Understand that your people were brought here to work. You were never meant to survive that. And through your own sacrifice and struggle, you willed yourself out of that condition. And not only did you free yourself, you gave this country any hope it will ever have of being something other than what it began as, which was a settler colony. Mm -hmm. Now understand that the first generation of people to be born in this country, who are majority non-white, have been born over the last two years. What you are witnessing now is fear. What you are witnessing now is fear. The fear from those who have been in control that they won't be in control anymore. It was the fear that this city watched from the time Marion Barry and his comrades from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came to this city in 1968 and turned this city into something no one ever thought it could be, the city that George Clinton called Chocolate City, mm-hmm. building a middle class that then moved out to Prince George's County, many of whom were teachers and faculty and administrators at Howard. That was Marion Barry, but it wasn't him by himself. It was his colleagues and comrades, most of them 20 and 30-something. It was the same fear that caused people to say we must stop them from voting. They're right. Y'all got to register to vote, and you have to vote. It is not the solution. It is not the solution. I voted in the Maryland election. I voted for Anthony Brown, not because Anthony Brown is progressive. Anthony Brown did not win the election in Maryland because he took the black vote for granted, and he ran an amateurish campaign. Some of y'all got to be governors in this country. Some of you got to be senators. Some of y'all had to be city council people. Mr. Chell is right. All politics is local. Some of y'all got to be presidents of the school board. And then some of y'all got to tear this country apart. And I don't mean with Molotov cocktails, because guess what? The same people, the same people, the same people who sacrificed so that this place would be open, they got that handled tonight wow. in Ferguson. Because there's some Negroes who say, let me give my life for something meaningful. And right now, they are fighting the police in Ferguson, Missouri, and I wish them all the safety that God and our ancestors can protect them as they decide to make that choice. But some of y'all got to be lawyers. Some of y'all got to get those people out of jail. And some of y'all 
some of y'all got to be the prosecutors. Some of you have to show the courage that Eric Holder decided that he was going to show until his friend backed him up, at which point I believe that's when he decided I quit. And some of y'all may have to be the president of this country. And not the accidental president like the current resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Please understand that that good brother caught lightning in a bottle. He is not the best that we had. He's not even close. He was the compromise. Some of y'all have to be in charge of this country. So I'm going to wind this up. Because I got eight o'clock class in the morning. No. And when, no, no, no. and when I leave here tonight, I am not leaving here to go to sleep. I'm leaving to read and to watch CNN and C-SPAN and everything else all night. And I'll see my students in the morning. Why do I say that I'm wrapping it up and that's what I'm getting ready to do? Because the only reason I draw breath because somebody rolled on my ancestors. Wow. And I will never forgive that. Mm. And I will spend my entire life, not in anger, not in rage, but in thanking God that I'm here at this time with you, full in the knowledge that the society you want, you can build. Mm. But if you don't do that, you're going to leave it to your children to do. And trust me, they will do it. Because just like somebody walked out of a field and this country shook and said, four million of them are here among us, let us build some institutions to train them to do what we need. Mm. And those Negroes then sent the, the po folks who came here before you to this place because they had a different idea. Mm. You better have a different idea. None of us is an expert. None of us knows enough. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you think this country is anything other than what you feel in your heart it is right now, you are sadly mistaken. There is nothing about that flag that normally flies up there that is worth honoring, except that the blood you spilled gave it some dignity. That flag came from a Jamaican. That flag came from Marcus Garvey. That flag has black in it from you. That flag has red in it from the blood that you spilled, and that flag has green for the prosperity and the promise of a future. In a kind of circumspect manner, you're going to show utter disrespect to the people that disrespected your ancestors, and you're going to do it through being better than anybody has ever been. And you, like Marion Barry did, are going to pass that on to your children. W.E.B. Du Bois, in his book, The Souls of Black Men, wrote, To be a poor man is hard, but to be a poor race in a land of dollars is the very bottom of hardships. Thank you for joining us in our series, The Souls of Black Folks, Facing and Rediscovering Critical Truths. We want to thank Chauncey De Vega, Carl Laurie for joining us previously in this series, and welcome Dr. Tommy J. Curry and Dr. James Lance Taylor tonight 
as we examine America for black folks and our black souls. The denial of basic humanities is clear. The theft of innocence of our children is here. The withholding and violation of both our human rights and civil rights and the banning of our civic engagement and punishment when we do. I'm Janice Grant. The souls of black folks, ashes of justice. Stay tuned. Good evening. Thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Bringing us into the program tonight, uh, Dr. Greg Carr of Howard University. As our children rise to the occasion, understanding that they must take their place in this struggle for freedom and justice in America. We're glad to have you with us and coming up tonight as we talk about the denial the basic of basic of our basic humanity in the context of the souls of black folks, a literary masterpiece that articulates the cost of hatred and the power to resist it. In our first hour, we're going to be talking with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. You know him. He has been with us before. He's an Our Common Ground voice. He is an associate professor, Ph.D., philosophy. Uh, it's from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale in 2008. His research interests include critical race theory and Africana philosophy anti-colonial economic thought and colonial sexuality studies. He currently serves as the executive director of Philosophy Born of Struggle. His work spans across the various fields of philosophy, jurisprudence, Africana studies, and gender studies. And in our second hour, Dr. James Lance Taylor. He's the author of the book, Black Nationalism in the United States from Malcolm X to Barack Obama, which earned him a 2011 Outstanding Academic Title Choice uh, Current Reviews for Academic Libraries, which is ranked top 3% of 25,000 books. He is Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco. And his undergraduate degree is from Pepperdine University, and his graduate degree earned at the University of Southern California. Um, we will have all both of those gentlemen with us, but coming in, I want to let you know that today, child murderer police cop Darren Wilson, who you also heard from in a stupendously stupid, transparent interview with ABC this week, um, has resigned from the Ferguson, Missouri Police Department. We also would like you to know that as we are on the air, coming on the air, protesters were gathering outside Ferguson Police Department, chanting, um, Black Power slogans and the 
and the new movement of liberation for young black people in this country, and also that the Pentagon City Mall has been shut down by protesters right out right in Washington D.C. So we we thank you for being with us. We apologize that we were not here last week. Um, and from time to time, life happens. Uh, we uh, do want to let you know that the first producer, the first executive producer of Our Common Ground in 1985, my beloved cousin sister, Olivia Simmons, Olivia Bailey Simmons, made her transition on last Monday. And I was away last Saturday with my family in Greensboro, North Carolina, honoring her life, the life of a very remarkable, remarkable woman uh, for which I am a witness since age four. Um, Alpha was not around last night. He is in Iowa uh, in uh, with his family, uh, giving thanks for the the 24 grandchildren and great-grandchildren that he has. Uh, And uh, we did miss him last night, but we were thankful this week to have India Declare on the air at 11 p.m. as she brought in her real raw and right now. Dr. Tommy J. Curry, the souls of black folks, we are revisiting and rediscovering some critical truths. How are you, my brother? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good. Um, Let me get some response from you about uh, both the landscape in which the grand jury's decision was made and about that decision, and also some commentary from you about uh, our community's response. We are a troubled people this week. Yeah, we we certainly are. Uh, I mean, I think I think what we've seen with the Wilson case of uh, murdering Brown is the same thing we saw with Trayvon Martin. Uh, it's the ability of white people to frame black men specifically as animals, beasts, uh, violent and crazed entities that that necessitate and cause their own death. I remember we talked about Trayvon Martin. You know, I was saying that look, you know, it's the same thing we see with Jordan Davis. The same thing we see with Sean Bell is that every time a black man is killed, there's an attempt to rationalize. There's a genocidal logic that's deployed within the culture that whites seem to take up with ease, that black men caused their death, right, that they deserve their death, that the only thing that white people can do to protect themselves is to, in fact, kill black people, right, to kill black men. And I think that this this kind of logic, unfortunately, is endorsed, specifically by white people, but throughout, you know, what we take to be academy, disciplines, and politics. So the same time that, you know, and I mentioned this on my Facebook page, the same time that we have this this cry, this rally around Michael Brown, we see a disbursement of other ideas that seem to reify the idea that black men are violent. We see Ray Rice, we see Cosby, we see Adrian Peterson. And unfortunately, as critical as we may think we are, we are also subject to the propaganda of this society. So we see black men and boys dying, but then we get a message from the press that says, fear black men. 
They're killers, they're rapists, they're abusers, they're child molesters, right? And I think that what happens in, in our mainstream discourse when you look at MSNBC is that we have the programming of we should all protest for Michael Brown. We have a programming of saying this is white supremacy working. See, in many ways, you know, jury nullified um, the grand jury so that they didn't get the indictment, right? So you got the prosecutor really defending Wilson. We have the problemization of that, but what we're not problematizing is how we reify these types of ideas that black men are violent. And the only way that we know how to deal with violence, because this is how our society deals with violence with black men, is to kill them. So Michael Brown is an example. He's a product of the type of society that says that black men have no place. They only have death. And this is why his his story resonates so much with white people. This is why he got half a million dollars to tell this story on national TV. Because despite the fact that they didn't get an indictment, no one's going to hold him accountable for the fact that he killed a child. We saw this with Trayvon Martin. The lawyer now is giving analysis on CNN. So as black people, we have to recognize that we, because we don't control the media, because we don't control the justice system, that our protests, while hoping to be recognized, in many ways are appealing to a system and to a people that have no consciousness about black people. So as much as we protest, as much as we shout out, we have to look into these movements in terms of how they're going to concretely challenge the system and not become co-opted by it. So while I think the Black Friday thing was something that a lot of people got behind, we ask the question, how does this intimidate, how does this arrest white people from taking the lives of black men and women? And I think that that's the problem. We haven't moved to that level of analysis. Our pundits, our, our, our public intellectuals certainly haven't moved to that analysis. They're trying to have a conversation with black people that says, yes, let white people hear your dissatisfaction. But I ask you, what dissatisfaction is going to move white people when they're militarizing to prevent and not hear that dissatisfaction? Wilson's not on the street anymore. He resigned from being a police officer precisely because we know that he's rewarded for doing the service that white people believe he had to do, which is killing a black man. So if we have a system that's going to constantly reward white people, same thing with George Zimmerman, constantly reward white white people who kill black men, then we have to start having different kind of conversations. That means that those conversations are going to include white people as enemies, the state as enemies, democracy as an enemy, the law as an enemy, right? That's not the conversations we have. We think that this is an aberration, that it just didn't work fairly, because we still haven't accepted the permanence of racism and how this is working to ensure that black men specifically and black people more generally, women, girls, family, children – are not able to thrive in this society. Now, this sounds like an old record because we, same thing that, you know, Greg was saying at Howard, right? We we know the history of oppression. The problem is we keep living in the idealistic that suggests to us that the oppression was in the past and is only remnants now. We don't look at it as the oppression was in the past and has developed. It's technologically innovated and advanced itself so that we keep seeing these murders. There's nothing that stops from the turn of the century with the boys that's writing the spawn of, you know, the spawn of slavery and Douglas is talking about the convict lease system to now. This is the same thing, but we don't want to identify that because we have our hopes and dreams of democracy. So when black children, and that's what I keep pointing out, these are children. When our black children are being killed, we don't have a conversation but protest. We march mm-hmm. through the streets. And while I think that that is a, as a strategy for recognition, I'm asking how do we protect our families? How do we protect our communities? How do we protect our children? Because that's a question that we haven't had. That's a conversation we haven't had. We ask for protection by the white people that are killing them. We're asking for conversations saying, police, please recognize your races. Don't shoot black men. That's what we're asking our oppressors. Now, does any what oppressed group in history has made advances by doing that? 
And that, you see, that's the dishonesty we have with ourselves because we're being led by a group of intellectuals and politicians that want a place in the system. They're not interested in saving black people's lives. And I think the protesters certainly are. But the protesters are appealing to a strategy that worked in the 1960s because that's our memory, that's our imagination, that's what we lead to. But until we start talking about self-defense, until we start talking about lawyers who are going to be the ones that are prosecuting these types of things, until we can take organized and collective action in that way, right, then I think we're going to constantly leave ourselves in the hands of our oppressors. Well, one of the things that has um, – that I don't think we have been, been nearly – as terrified as we should have been about the interview that Darren Wilson did this week on on Wednesday night um, where he portrays the giant Negro trope. Uh, It came came to, to, to me that my first thought was that it's not really a relic that's buried in the New York Times dusty archives. It's alive and well, and Michael Brown is not. And we haven't had the kind of, I'm not seeing the kind of discussion that we need to be having about the import of a black man who is in, a black boy who's impervious to bullets. To with bullets. Superhuman yes. strength and crush someone He's with a, a single Negro. blow. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. But and see, I don't think that we're reasonably afraid and terrified by that kind of bias that is a real thread woven through the society in which we live because there are people right. who believe every word that Darren Wilson has to say. Exactly. Or had but to the question say. Becomes, but do we but here's the question. Do we negotiate with those people? Or do we have to recognize those people as enemies and defend ourselves from them? Well, see, that, see, that's the problem. The problem is that we think we can negotiate with people that think that black people are magical niggers that bullets bounce, bounce off of. See, we want to negotiate with people who fundamentally believe that black people have to die. I don't know what the basis of negotiation is. And we keep well, and, I, and, I've, and I've turned on TV. Every every single thing is white privilege, white privilege, white privilege, Right. But but that's a that's a discourse designed to try to get white people to sympathize with the fact that oh look we're human too, but if we we're losing lives we're having public intellectuals have conversations you're absolutely right they're not telling black people the black public you should be terrified of the idea that this kind of 19th century rhetoric this this 1890s idea about black men being super predators and and superhuman are fundamentally linked to them going into neighborhoods and shooting black men. Mm-hmm. That's not mm-hmm. what they're telling the black public, right? And see, and this, mm-hmm. is, this is why I get tired of looking towards these pseudo-intellectuals and these people that are put on liberal news as the basis of how we need to understand this problem. Ferguson arises because the same thing that always happens, just like when we had the Klan. You have white people in power in poor neighborhoods that abuse that power to keep poor black populations in check. You kill black men because black men have been symbols of political power and representation. You shoot them, you leave their bodies in the street, and it is a symbol that divests the community and the people of political action. In this case, you've got protests, but you don't have self-defense, and you even have black people constantly being told, don't be violent when they loot. We probably 
traumatize the looting. When they riot, we traumatize the riot. If they hit a policeman, these people deserve this behavior. That's Don Lemon. So in every situation, black people are the ones that are under the moral evaluation when the real issue is the fact that white people, specifically white police officers, can have historically killed black people without any kind of moral issue whatsoever. And they're protected by the law when they do it, and they're reined in and they're, they're controlled and guided by the parameters of the black intelligentsia that tell black people that, hey, you can riot, but let's not talk about killing people. You can do this, but let's not talk about this. Or, in fact, if you're going to riot, then this is an exercise of democracy. Let's not talk about revolution. Let's not get guns. Let's not threaten the lives of white people. Let's not protect ourselves, right? It's, it's everything that even appears to be critical is in, ends up to be conservative and preserving the status quo because it appeals to the same system that these very people uh, depend on for their livelihoods. And the poor black people that's on the street, that's marching, that's protesting, don't necessarily have the conceptualization of the larger political system because they're on the ground looking at police throwing tear gas at them. So we're, we're disjointed in how we understand Ferguson and how it relates to the actual concrete death of black folk. Mm-hmm. We look at it mm-hmm. as a new civil rights movement. I've listened to, well, I don't know how many people, you know. No, go ahead, I'm sorry. I, I, I wanted to stop you there because I think that one of the things that we have not grappled with, and I think that most um, black people in this country have not come to the conclusion that there is no defense. This man said Uh um, that in the last moments before he fired the fatal shot, that Michael Brown, an 18-year-old who had been hit by that time by five bullets, made a grunting-like, and I quote, a grunting-like aggravated sound and charged toward him, through his gunfire. He right. said he didn't even slow down after one of the right. brothers apparently hit him. I mean, right. when we listen to that, we have, and this is a prosecutor who sat in a secret meeting mm-hmm. and allowed that to be said without challenge. And the only exactly. person that I have heard, uh, uh, Dr. Curry, the only person that I have heard who has challenged that in a, a well-articulated rage is a white woman named Lisa Bloom. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And, but I, but then I say why. Why, why? why is it that we haven't challenged this mystical twilight Negroisms that's been put forth for the black public? You see, this is, Janice, this is what I mean when I talk about what we choose to focus on. We focus on the protest as a sign of a new revolution and civil rights movement happening in America. What we're not focusing on is the brood historical fact that white people still fundamentally believe that black people, specifically black boys, black males, right, are impervious beasts that must be put down. We let that go unchallenged. But here is the transposition of it. Uh, and for all of you that uh, all of you who are out there listening for the audience, here's a transposition of that kind of thinking, and that is you ought to be corralling up your children, mm-hmm. your black nappy head children, and taking them in the house and not letting them out without rethinking how you are going to operate in this society. Mhm. Because the young people, you know, I have a great deal. 
I, I, I just have a great deal of respect for uh, Dr. Carr, and he was talking to uh, at a vigil, a uh, midnight vigil at Howard University to college students. And yeah, we know one. from history that most of the movements, the Black Power movement, the Civil Rights movement, started, was ignited by people like Marion Barry. And you all can talk about mm-hmm. Marion Barry. You know, I, I'm, I, I'm daring somebody to call up here and talk about Marion Barry. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm daring somebody. Because he was a man that I hitchhiked from Massachusetts all the way to D.C. one afternoon just to hear him speak. So uh, don't start no foolishness up on our common ground because, uh, as some other host is known to say, I'm in control here at (laughs) 347-838-9852. And I got something for your ass if you come and stoop it. So here is the context. So we have students who are making the effort, taking the risk out on the street to protect your children. And they don't have no children. Right. I mean, I I just, I think about my, my two grandsons, 113, and he looks like he's 17 because he's 6'2", and one who's two, uh, who is all but wild and in himself. And I know they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to that thinking. I don't care how many times that boy goes to MIT and makes a star of himself. They are vulnerable. And I'm wondering if the adults... The parents in this, the black parents in this country, are going to begin to organize to make some movement in their own communities where you live, where your children have to walk the street, ride their bicycles, get on the train, go to school. If you do not understand that they have to be protected from being the big black boogeyman. Well, I think that I think that this is the conversation that needs to happen, but again, you know, when you look at who's been directing the conversation, this conversation about black Who do you think's been di- directing the conversation? I unfortunately I think it's the same blogs, I think it's MSNBC, Salon, you know, I think that those people because that's the liberal media. Those are the people that most Americans, especially black academics and black, you know, people that have political consciousness turn to. Uh, everyone else is kind of pushed off to the side as you know black radicals. They're they're with our common ground or black agenda report, right? So I think that I think the problem there is that you have a mainstream and moderate discourse about how Ferguson should be dealt with. I think that the protests and looking at you know I saw today that they had a uh, a stage sitting a, a dead end in the mall where people you know uh, collapsed on the floor and they staged a protest there. I think those things are symbolic and I think that those are good. They're indicative of the dissent that Black people have generally or that America has more generally with what happened in Ferguson. But let's be honest. Where's the conversation about black male vulnerability next to cops and next to these white vigilantes? Where, mm-hmm. Where's that mm-hmm. conversation? And I'm, and I'm just being honest. If a cop I, I want to know where's the conversation that we had three, three, um, three months ago about taking the tanks and the tear gas that's, and the grenades away. That's what I want to know. Yep. But that, but where's see, that's that conversation? That's not, the, 
No, there's no, but, there's but, no but conversation. But the thing about is that. that there should be, there should be at least twenty-five filings in Missouri State Court, in St. Louis local courts, over what's happening with this the police department in Ferguson. There should be major class actions going on from black people all over this country about Absolutely. the violation of simple civil rights issues and human rights issues. And it's not happening. All we're doing is talking. You're absolutely right. I mean, even the UN, even the UN came in and, and talked about Ferguson. But we, but again, mm-hmm. we haven't had that conversation. Our intellectuals are not saying, "Look, this is a violation of our human rights. This supersedes the civil rights that the United States government is willing to afford to black people." But see, this is not what we're cultivating. You see, this is what I'm trying to say: is that we have cultivated a type of conversation that is dictated by a certain set of interests by black intellectuals and politicians that are not at the fundamental root of what's causing Ferguson. The issue mm-hmm. here you know, needs it's, to be it's really people interesting that you say count. that. Um, I've been following um, uh, the public, very public and very ugly argument between, uh, well, actually, uh, offenses between exchange, offensive exchanges between Ishmael Reed, who is an elder uh, in our community, yes. and Jelani and Dr. Jelani Cobb. Uh-huh. Over the issue of whether or not uh, <laughs> some people got along 150 years ago, mm-hmm. rather than the kinds of movement that both of those people and I, 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 you know, I have a great deal of respect and love for Ishmael Reed, who was. Uh, a guest on this show in our early years very often, um, and Jelani Cobb, who has also been a guest uh, at Our Common Ground. So they're both Our Common Ground voices. But what we need to be doing is we need to be putting together a strategy that gets to the street corners, that gets to the mothers and the fathers, of our children who are the most vulnerable, and those are the, those are those who think they have nothing to lose. Right, right. No, I'm, and I'm, and I'm I don't see us that. doing that. I, well, I, not, but but I, again, we we haven't accepted. I think because I think partly, and, and again, this is the danger of how black people have assimilated and absorbed some of the propaganda, is that what we see is that we have limited the concepts of our conversations. So because we have a educated elite, we have students, right, who are protesting this on the basis that it's racism, it's white supremacy, and it's the violation and the killing of someone's life, which is correct. On the other hand, they have not articulated the meaning of this revolt in a re-understanding, a recontextualization of what it means to be both black and male in this society. We see post after post about black men die, black men die, black men die, right? But where's the analysis that these students have about why these black men die? Nobody, you see, because we we are taught that somehow being male doesn't deserve the type of attention necessary to the vulnerability of death. 
we are not understanding Mike Brown and Sean Bell and Jordan Davis, et cetera, as being vulnerable in the society based on their maleness. And what this does mm-hmm. is it creates a conversation where we say, oh, black boy, that's racism. It's saying, saying, oh, black boy, as a boy, he is vulnerable to this type of violence because there is something endemic in the white psyche about killing black males. Mm-hmm. And until we and then have the, that conversation the, about vulnerability, questions. we're going to still, yeah. There, there's some very simple questions. For instance, why wasn't the minute that uh, Darren Wilson admitted that he said to Michael Brown and his companion, get the fuck out the street, right. why wasn't he fired? Right. There is no because, other customer service. There's no other customer service strategy by any and and citizens are customers of police officers. Mm-hmm. There's no other customer service where I, if I walk, worked at 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 Applebee's and I said to a customer, "Get the fuck off the telephone or You're cell phone." Right. I would be fired. That's simple. Yeah. That's very simple. The other simple the thing I wanted to talk to you about and you know you and I talk about it all the time is okay. that the language used by you academicians black academicians job in this environment must be to help the masses understand what is happening here I agree that this is not Business as usual. This is a walk back to the 1930s. Black people are being lynched. Black children are being found killed. Black children, uh, black black women are 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 now being demonized. Mm -hmm. And in that demonization, there is uh, a, a ticket to kill and maim and um, humiliate and rob them of their humanity. And their children. And nobody's talking and about families. that. You're right. The, the, because, but, you know, but and, 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 and we've got to change the language. Ruby, uh, Dr. Ruby Sales, Reverend Ruby Sales, was on here uh, a month or so ago from Ferguson, and that was one of the things she kept saying, that we've got to create a new language for people mm-hmm. to use. I mean, I can't tell you over the last two weeks how many black people I have run into, and they don't have a clue. This is something that happened in Ferguson. They have, right. don't have a clue. And the academy has a tremendous opportunity to make itself worthwhile in our community. But you know, and they're not doing but you know it's not. But you know it's not, and I can tell you why it's not. It's not doing that because people have an investment in their theories and their politics. So every, and that's what I'm saying is that we're not trying to reconceptualize and create a new language for why this has happened in 2014, right? That's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is still hold our ideas of American democracy or American progressivism or this idea that we could work through law or we hold our gender ideas through black feminism and say, oh, well, you know, this is bad, but look at all this other stuff like domestic abuse and rape, right? Like these things need to, you know, we're trying to push our agenda on the black public. And this is is why – 
this is why I'm upset. I'm upset not because people have interest in those issues. I'm upset because they don't understand that in trying to put these issues next to each other, that inevitably it it builds up the idea that the black boy will inevitably become this kind of wretched black male. He Mm -hmm. could be Bill Mm -hmm. Cosby. He could be Adrian Peterson. He could be Ray Rice. So until those people give us solutions that deal with acculturation and the multifaceted aspects of domestic violence and rape and all these other things that plague every community, not just black people and not done by black men, then they excuse in many ways rationalize the type of genocidal thinking that white people have. And, they, yeah, and, we, yeah. and we let them get away from it, because we let them get away with it because that's all we're taught. We're, we're yeah. taught by a group of liberal individuals that we can't say anything about women, right, because we're talking well, we're talking about race. So we let that Trump go. And then we say, okay, well, Michael Brown's bad, but that's just racist. So we, we've already compartmentalized what things are and separated them so that one thing trumps or takes hierarchy over the other. And that's, mm-hmm. that is anti-intellectual, especially when you're trying to educate a public, because the public recognizes, just like we saw with Trayvon Martin, just like we're seeing now with Tamir, same thing we're seeing with Mike Brown, is that there's a fundamental issue here that supersedes what academicians think through. So it's not like you can take these theories that white people gave you, and believe me, there are white theories, and then try to apply them to black people and act like black people are supposed to fall in line. And this is why you have the division between what's coming from MSNBC and these black academics and what black people are saying at the ground. And then what do they do? They they pathologize the black community. Oh, well, we went to Ferguson and we didn't think women were heard enough, or we went to Ferguson and we didn't think there was enough diversity, or we went to Ferguson and the black men didn't do X, and they didn't say X, and they didn't understand X, right? But these people are fighting for what they perceive to be their very concrete lies, not you visiting them, telling them what their lies mean. And until well, you know what my response to that, that energy, is. Yes, ma'am. The intersection that matters is called oppression. I, I agree. We're going to go to the phones. We've only got a few minutes, folks. This is how it works. We've got two hours. We used to do four hours, but guess what? Um, It kind of went to the the left here at our common ground, so we're doing two hours. And Dr. James Lance Taylor is going to be joining us at 11 o'clock. So you've got to get your questions in, get your comments real quick. We've got to go to a break at the top of the hour and – Dr. James Lance Taylor is going to be joining us. 857, you're on the air. I respect you with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. 857? I guess not. I'll put you on mute. 215, you're on the air with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Hi, how are you? Okay, you're on the air. Okay. Um, you know, when I, I teach at an African Center School, and my biggest concern is that when we look at public education, it's not pluralistic by any means. So mm-hmm. when we look to see if um, the burden will lie on the parent to teach the child about socialization, about what they should expect, um, that's where we have to rely that it rests there when we look at public education. Because... Uh, there is nowhere where you want to find a classroom where someone is teaching a child realistically about what they should expect, regardless of how they exceed past 12th grade and into college. 
And then you have, and my other concern is sometimes you have the intellectuals um, that believe because they have cultivated through a certain pathway that this does not exist, which leaves the child to think that as well. So I guess my question is, you know, how do we even turn the tides with that? Because as long as our children, as long as we're relying on the parent, we can't just assume the parent is going to teach them about this. Absolutely. No. Right. So somewhere we have to make a push when it comes even in terms of education that our kids, because race and class starts there. I mean, mm-hmm. we're so what we're talking about. We're not just talking, we're talking about race and class theories. Um, all that emerges right there in education. So somewhere mm-hmm. it, it has to start there. Did you say that you teach at an Afrocentric Afri- school? at an African-centered school in Philadelphia? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. I think that uh, let me let me go first. Uh, uh, Tommy, Absolutely. and then I want you to chime in in response to this caller from Philadelphia. I think one of the things is that an African-centered school has the responsibility of feeding the black soul of every child, and you do well, that. Well, now, if you're, at, if you're at a charter school, you're teaching just the children that are enrolled there. My concern is that if you're not at an African-centered school, mm then we have to rely on well, public that education. Goes to, right. that, that, that goes to we should be able to rely and we have an obligation as a community to have an alternative to the kind of education that children are, are getting in public education, which is for most black children uh, substandard. Um, because they're not having their black souls fed. Right. Um, I'm a big proponent of street academies. I'm a big (laughs) proponent of local political empowerment to have, to turn our community centers from basketball centers into history and culture (sighs) centers. Right, absolutely. But a lot of us sit back and we allow these communities where money is being spent. Uh, we allow these centers uh, where children are just running around and they're doing their math homework and they're doing basketball and soccer, and that's all they're doing. We should have Saturday academies for our children. And, you know, people talk about funding for stuff. It don't cost nothing to go to the park, to organize and go to the park and have a Saturday Academy and teach African and African-American history and African culture and African-American culture to teach civics to our children. One of the things is we have generation after generation of, of, of black people, grown people, who know nothing about how their community is funded, how their community, how government works. So you can't you can't un- dismantle something that you don't know how it's put together. T- right. Tommy, you want to uh, go in two one five? Thank you for your call so much. Thank yeah. you, Dr. Uh, I, Curry. I think really quickly, yes, ma'am. I think really quickly too is that we have to we have to understand the position that many black people are in. 
I think that when we talk about the role that parents have in education, we have to recognize that black people generally are still in the condition where they're primary laborers. So that means that men and that the mom and the father are working, and in many cases where the father is not there, the mom is taking on the sole responsibility of earning money. So we have to look at the conditions and try to adjust curriculum to fit that. Uh, we could supplement that with, you know, actually using multimedia to educate and get, you know, people in. They could get to college lectures. We could broadcast these types of things. We have to start tying in the political needs that black people have in society with the education of our children so that they understand what their political needs and what their political answers have to be as they grow up. We're not giving children a critical philosophical and political education in school. We're teaching them our curricula that makes them to come makes them come out to be laborers and produce products for a society that doesn't really care about them instead of them being actual citizens. So we have to change the conversation completely. And I think we do that by, you know, diversifying what we think the curriculum actually consists of. Right. Absolutely. You know, Hillary Clinton sabotaged the idea of it takes a village. And what we need to do is reclaim it, because it does. Yes, we do need to reclaim it. And what's also happening with uh, No Child Left Behind really started all of this, because it's not yes. a proponent of charter schools. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I teach at an African-centered charter school, and one thing I do love about that is that <laughs> I mean, one thing I like is that we do have that flexibility, and more specifically being at an African-centered charter school, you know, I have the I have that leeway to infuse African infusion yeah. into yours my curriculum. Right. Yes. There is a new industrial complex that has waved it, weaved its way through America, and it's the charter school system that simply is another capitalism project to undermine poor people in this country. Right. Um, I just uh, think that, you know, there there are some unique and good charter schools, but the larger network and system of charter schools is just really bad for us. Because well, I guess it, it also not. looks like it becomes choice when it look, when a parent is trying to decide between a safe environment and yes, deciding to send absolutely. their child to you know to the school in the neighborhood, which, is, which should be well. an agenda, which should be part of our end game right. coming out of all of this. Whatever we're going to do, and we better do it quickly. Um, that part of our end game has to be that we have to demand where our children are educated, be be safe places, safe for their souls and safe for their minds. Exactly. Yes. Thank you for your call. Uh, Thank we're going to take one more call before we go to the top of the hour. Really enjoyed talking with you. Hope you'll join us each Saturday night. 443, you're on the air. I respect you with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Good evening, Dr. Tommy J. Curry. This is Patricia Moody Jefferson. How are you doing? I'm good, ma'am. Well, How are you? Well, damn, you're not going to say it's, the sister just oh, went on by me. Good evening, DJ. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Dr. Curry, I have a question. Yes, and I yes, think we probably um, talked about this before, and I don't know if mm. you have time, but um, I wanted to know. You know, what what's going on in academia with respect to, you know, when we look back, you know, years before you saw that, you know, you had those scholars that had a hell of a critique of racism, white supremacy, and, you, you know, you're not 
well, I'm not really finding that anymore. And I'm just kind of wondering, you know, like, uh, you know, Marvin Gaye said, what's going on? You know, what's, what's going on here? Look, I mean, it just doesn't get you jobs anymore, right? Um, it's a rarity for you. To, I mean, and, and really just just think about this in terms of the composition you see in these departments now. I mean, most of the old school people that are going to come with a race class analysis that talks about white supremacy uh, are going to be older black men and women who are coming from sociology and history. The young scholars today are more interested in discourse analysis. They're interested in identity politics. Everything's about identity. Everything's about inclusion, right, these kind of ideas. So you're not going to get those people really criticizing white supremacy. They'll drop the word like they know what it means. But ultimately it just serves to get to some other end, be that in liberal or democratic or pragmatist or progressive or feminist. So you don't get black people actually saying, look, here's what the law said. Here's how the law was enacted. Here's how these groups of individuals benefit from the law. Here's how economic situates the powerlessness of people in Ferguson next to the grand jury, next to the police state, right? You know, and look at you know, that's not the kind of analysis you're gonna get these days. The kind of analysis you're gonna get is, Oh, he's a black boy, they die. Oh, we Women are leading the protest now. Oh, you know, black men are, you know. So it's not a real serious analysis, and that's what the Academy Awards today. So you don't get very many black academics that are going to seriously challenge white supremacy because now everybody wants to be in the spotlight. The rise of the public intellectual has in many ways created a disincentive for people to actually write radical thought because if you write about white supremacy and black people all day, then people don't think that you can have a crossover effect to white people. So you have to have a reach over audience. If you're not talking to white liberals and white progressives or white moderates, then you've got to talk to white feminists because those are, that's the second largest group in the humanities. So, you know, if you, it's, it's really audience appeal. So it's, it's, it's really done a do uh, to, to what black people can and have said. And then the people that are actually making these arguments, they have a hard time getting jobs, they have a hard time getting tenure, uh, and they're looked on as kind of an underclass of the academic industrial complex. Uh, so and, that's, Pat, that's you why also you have to it. realize that even when it seemed that we had many uh, black academicians uh, in colleges and universities, most of those who were actually developing theories of liberation and strategies for struggle for black people were very few. Yeah. Hmm. But, you know, this is like E. Frank Frazier said, right? Uh, you have to understand that certain black intellectuals are propped up by certain white liberal organizations because they know if they say the other thing, then they'll be, you know, targeted and surveyed by the FBI and CIA. So in many ways, the way that black people conduct themselves in the academy is to get around having to deal with the kind of apparatuses that they say that they're the ones that they're revolting, the, right. the apparatus that they right. say that they're revolting against. And we just right. have to be honest about that. And people like Howard Thurman, people like um, um, Ron Walters, um, mm -hmm. those people were protected by their institutions until the institutions became caramelized. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now you have HBCUs who really have their boots on the neck of uh of of their faculty. So oh. the faculty is not doing any do, doing very much. Um I did so, I, so I have this question. How, okay, then why do we have this talk about 
academic freedom if it really doesn't exist, because that's what it sounds like. Oh, it's the same way we have to talk about democracy and it doesn't exist. <laughs> I think you've got your answer. Pat, I've got to move on, but it's good to have you with us tonight. And um, um, I, I think we have to keep thinking about this. Next week we're going to have a free with uh, free for all with a lot of our guests over the year as we end our 2014 broadcast system, uh, season, and I hope you'll join us. Uh, Dr. Raymond Wimbush and I have been having this discussion for many, many years, and he's going to be joining us along with Kevin Alexander Gray. Uh, I'm hoping that Dr. Curry will will join us as well. It's just going to be a free-for-all. And Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thanks, Pat. Do you want me to put you on mute, or are you on your computer? Um, I'm on my phone. Oh, okay. I'm going to put you on mute so you can continue to listen to the broadcast. We're going to take one more call, and it's got to be brief. We're at the top of the hour. Wait, we're past the top of the hour. 857, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. I respect you. With Dr. Hi, Tommy uh, Curry. Hi. Um, I would like to uh, to go back to, to say uh, originally that I really enjoyed the conversation um, and that uh, I agree 100% on what you're saying. Um, and especially, I'm going to make uh, quickly three points um, here. And is that um, I agree with you when you said that historically, uh, one of the facts is that the black men have been seen as a beast. And I would like to, uh, to add to that that it also has been seen as guilty. Uh, guilty of no matter what, no matter when, uh, he's always is being seen as guilty. The other thing is that um, when we talk about genocide, um, uh, people people in America they are not looking at the situation here as a genocide. Uh, they are killing our boys and our men are in jail. So if that's not a genocide, I don't know what the definition of genocide is anymore. The other thing is that more work, um, I know academia, school, and all of that, we need to do a lot of work, lot of work but more work needs to be done at home with the family. And as you mentioned, you know, what happened, people are not looking at the roots of Ferguson. What happened there, what we see today is not what the roots are. We need to go back and look at the roots of the issues. We need to teach our, our black boys that the white people have, they have an agenda. And we need to teach them the agenda. We need to share with them the, the historically issue that going on against black in America and especially uh, intentional, intentional, uh, organized and planned by white people. So we need to go back to the to the roots, and we need to do more and more work with with family at home. When kids go to the school, obviously school has some responsibility, but parents also have the bigger responsibility to teach uh, to the children who are the enemies. And and also the other thing that I I like to add is that. Um, we have been following in this country the white agenda. When you talk about feminists, uh, feminism, that's what we have been following. We are not creating our own. We are not looking at our own issue, but we're just following whatever it is that the white people have created here, and that needs to change. 
Absolutely. By doing more grassroots work and working uh, with families and working in the community and teaching our boys and also teaching our men that, you know, the enemies are, our fathers, our parents, our brothers, uh, to teach them that, you know, Every time, and I'm saying that because that's what black men saying to me. Every time I go out on the street, I am guilty. I'm not, I'm not sure guilty or what, but I know that the cops and everybody else is looking at me as guilty. So we need to teach that to our boys, and we need to prepare them. We need to equip them. Uh, as you said, to defend themselves. I mean, uh, people think about defending themselves only physically, but no, we need to be able to intellectually, mentally, even spiritually, to be ready to defend ourselves as black people in America. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. And I recognize that voice. Uh, It is the voice of our Common Ground voice, Carmen Del Rosario, who's uh, back in America but on her way to Ethiopia, she is a violence counselor and coach. She just left her assignment Fantastic. in Mali, and she is going to Ethiopia to help men and women who face violence and how to resolve those issues, how to defend themselves mm-hmm. Um I mean, she's just one powerful woman. She was uh, she she was guest with us when she came in from uh, Liberia on her way to Mali. Now she's on her way to Ethiopia. She spent two years in the Congo working with men and women who were victims of both family violence as well as military violence. Dr. That's Tommy T. J. Curry, thank you once again for being with yes, us. Yes, ma'am. Feeding our black souls and helping us understand we are where we were and we've got to be somewhere other than where we are. I love you, my brother, and thank you so very much uh, for being with us. I'm going to put you on hold so you can listen to the broadcast. Uh, Dr. James Lance Taylor will be joining us. Thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. We're always rushing this has got to stop. Nine one nine three seven. I see you. And after the break, and we have a, a short conversation with Dr. James Lance Taylor. We're going to be with you. We will be right back. Programs and all of the programs that I attended, all of the education that I had, college, public, and otherwise. Nobody ever told me that I was an African woman. Nobody ever told me what the history of African people were. Nobody ever told me that America is business and without business you will have nothing and be nothing. And nobody ever told me how to organize business so that I would be able to develop institutions in my own community. So now the sincerity, the sincerity of all of the programs and all of the education has to be questioned indicted and convicted because the bottom line is that America is not and has never tried to produce African adults who are functional, self-sufficient, who understand their politics, their economics, and their relationship to the world politics and the world. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Right, that's what you want to do. Hey, go, go. 
You're listening to Truth Works Network, the Alpha Show. Yes, this is Janice Graham. Did you say it's Media Matters? Oh, yes. India is moving her show to Tuesday nights at 11 p.m. It's going to be the I Declare Show Nighttime Edition. It begins on November 18th. Thank you for calling. And please spell the name I-N-D-I-A Declare. Real, raw, and right now. The I Declare Show, moving its broadcast time and date. India is moving to Tuesday. The I Declare Late Night with India Declare on Blog Talk Radio. Coming November 18th, the I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Real, raw, and right now. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind. It's a terrible thing to waste. In the mood, slide your rump, just for a minute, on to the bump, 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 yeah. You can't touch this. Look, man, you can't touch this. You better get a hype, boy, because you know you can't, you can't touch this. And now, back to Janice. Ring the bell, school's back in. And we thank you for being with us here tonight on Our Common Ground. It wouldn't be November if I didn't have a cold, of course. And then there will be the one that comes up in December and January and February, and it goes on, and we're not going to cancel any broadcast as a result. But we do have some program notes next week. Here at Our Common Ground, we're going to have a huge panel. I'm not going to talk at all um, of all of the people, well, not all of them, but some of the key people who have brought issues to our common ground over the last year, 2014 broadcast year, uh, Black America, State of Emergency. And we're inviting you to join us. I also would not 
uh, pass by noting the death of the former mayor of Washington, D.C., and the first president of SNCC, Marion Barry. He is going to be laid to rest in Washington, D.C. this week, and if you are in the area, please make sure uh, that you pay some homage. Uh, you do not have, if you do not have any idea of what this man has meant in terms of building authentic black political empowerment, you should uh, buy his his book, which was just uh, published about four months ago. Coming up now. Uh, Dr. James Lance Taylor, the author of the book Black Nationalism in the United States from Malcolm X to Barack Obama. Uh, He has served as a policy consultant to the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. He is the past president. And I want to get this right because, you know, sometimes I, I pull stuff out of my head and it's all wrong. He is the past president of the Association of, see, I, I knew I was going to get this wrong, uh, of uh, political scientists, uh, black political scientists, African-American political scientists. I'm looking for it right now because I know I wrote it down. Um, <clears throat> and it was important, I thought, for us to talk with him as we look at the souls of black folks sitting in ashes of injustice, of justice. Justice is just, for us, has just gone all to the left. And I thought it was very important, and I want to invite him for his first visit to Our Common Ground, Dr. James Lance Taylor. <coughs> you can find him on Facebook. Dr. Taylor, thank you so very much for joining us tonight. Well, thank, you for, thank you for having me. And and welcome to our common ground because this is the sanctuary yeah, I'm where I'm really excited. Um, black truth reigns here. Right. And somebody's gonna call me and ask me about what I'm talking about. Just you know, think about it for a minute. Um, tell us, talk to us about what has happened coming out of Ferguson and the smoke that is wafting across America in the age of Obama. How can we be good citizens of this black nation? Um, How can we change the course of what's going on here? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, there's a a great deal of, I think, inwardness that has to come out of this this moment. Uh, The previous conversation that you had, um, with with the professor from uh, t- uh, Texas A and M, I really appreciated mm-hmm. yeah, Dr. Curry. Thank you. I really appreciated his his insight and his critiques, especially of 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 of, a, of the academy. I, I honestly, as much as the academy has is an important fulcrum for you know developing critical thinking and and critical analysis and critical perspective, it has largely been useless to Black people in the last thirty years. Um, and I mean that sincerely. Amen uh, that to that. I mean that sincerely because, you know, yes. much like, like, you know, Dr. Curry suggested, there's almost been this this deliberate attempt, uh, I think, by academic uh, institutions to de-emphasize radical criti- criticisms uh, that are pertinent. And when I say pertinent, I mean that, uh, that are uh, well-placed 
in the context of the American situation. So what you have is this, you know, ten, I think uh, the influence of post-structuralism and the sort of neo-Marxist feminist um, critiques that have emerged in the last 30 to 40 years have done, what they've done most effectively is not offer a way forward or a map forward uh, none of them offer a map forward to, to that, that is useful for black people. Most of them preoccupy on deconstruction and, and preoccupying on what's wrong with what exists as opposed to offering affirmative programs. And so in some ways, some of the best thinkers and thinking is being uh, curtailed by um, the circumstances in which they find themselves having to uh, satisfy, you know, presidents and provosts and, uh, you know, peer review committees that, you know, give them tenure and promotion. So so, so in some ways, we have to look beyond the academy and look more, I think, at the organic intellectuals, ordinary people in community, like young people that we saw down in Florida in the Dream Defenders uh, uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Philip against, Agnew against, and, yeah. Right. Yeah, and then, you know, efforts of, of that sort, because it seems to me, uh, you know, young people on the ground in Ferguson um, and, and, elf, and all over this country and all over this world, uh, we see it happening right now. So for me, I think we have to begin to try to find new, me- new means, new, new fulcrums, new spaces um, that allow us to talk and then organize ourselves, because it's way beyond, we're almost beyond the point of talking uh, about the need to come together. We, we should be at the point now I think at a micro level, I love what you said previously about local efforts, and that's what I'm, I'm really big on, is to remind people that the civil rights movement, uh, broadly speaking, emerges in Louisiana, uh, Wichita. You mentioned Ron Walters, Wichita, Kansas. Ron Walters was the first person to lead a truce. The, the, the sit-ins. It was not Greenboro. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the North Carolina account that we've been told in history. Right. It was actually Ron Walters led it in Wichita, Kansas. Um, and, and so I think this is what you, you, you need, is, is a, a, a way to organize um, spaces for black people to begin to uh, develop their own methods and approaches. Uh, what Howard Cruz says beautifully, I love Howard Cruz. I consider myself I do a student too. of Howard Cruz. And Cruz uh-huh. seems that, you know, if we had taken, I think, Cruz more seriously in his critiques, where he tries to make clear that there's the Amer- we are dealing with the American nature of white supremacy, which is different than white supremacy abroad and white supremacy in Europe and white supremacy in Australia. White supremacy is a global phenomenon, but it's particular in its localities. So the white supremacy in Brazil is different than the white supremacy in South Africa, which is different than white supremacy in the United States. And out of all of those groups, the African Americans, the black group here in America, have it the worst because we have the most brutal history um, in terms of white um, uh, denial about what they've done. At least in South Africa, they acknowledged the offense and not, at least tried poorly uh, to construct the, the Truth and Reconciliation mm-hmm. Commission. This country has not even seen, in fact, Within the 1870s, immediately within a decade of liberation or abolition, whites began to talk about the threat of Negro domination. Now, here you held people in chains for 400 years, and when you let them go, within a decade, you turn it back on them uh, and say that they are, you know, engaged in Negro domination. And this is the very same thing that happened in the Civil Rights Movement. Once blacks broke through with the 64 and 65 uh, uh, legislation, immediately there was this whole concern about reverse discrimination. And I say this in my book on black nationalism, that for white America, year one is 1965. For them, when 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed, even though it was undermined last summer in 2013, 
That's when blacks got equal, and we could be equally racist as they are, and we could victimize them. And in some polls right now, there's actually a sentiment amongst majorities of white Democrats and Republicans, not just the Republican conservatives, but the Democrats, too, that blacks are oppressing white people. So that's the mindset, the, 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 the wide gap between black existential reality on a daily basis across every social index, all of the social indexes. And yet in white people's mind, I mean, the average, the median, the median black uh, savings of wealth is about $4,900. For white people, it's about $115,000. And somehow they still see themselves as subordinate to black people. So it's, a, it's an amazing mindset that we're dealing with. And so for black Americans, I think what has to happen um, is, to, is to recognize that Ferguson is not simply about Michael Brown. It's not simply about police brutality. I think it's a, a gathering place of all of the different uh, issues that are, are prevalent mm -hmm. in African-American life everywhere. So the dream defenders are not dealing with the precise issues that the Moral Mondays uh, movement is dealing with in uh, North Carolina, which is different than the Oscar Grant movement here in Oakland where I live, which is different than what they're doing, say, in Detroit around housing, which is different than what people are doing down in New Mexico around police brutality and, and police murders in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So, so all of these movements are, like in the 60s, they are not one movement. They are simultaneous movements that express the stresses that exist throughout this entire society. America is a sick dying young country. It, it's a country that got cancer while it was still a baby. And that's what America is. It's a baby historically when you compare it to China or Egypt or other ancient civilizations. America was born yesterday in the historical uh, reach of time, and it has spent most of its time preoccupying on keeping black Americans from reaching their full potential as a people. Because they know if they unleashed all of the segments, uh, sectors of the society, to truly open it up in education, in employment, in business, in, and, and open the society so that capitalism, as awful as it is, but if capitalism could actually be democratic, um, uh, white America is not willing. They, they would rather see this country burn down to the ground before they Thank allow you. black people to participate in it equally. Mm -hmm. So Ferguson, they're saying to you in Ferguson, have at it, enjoy it, burn it down. We'd rather burn it than let you enjoy it. And that's the, that's the mindset we're dealing with in this country. Well, one of the things that I have been purporting on this broadcast almost from the beginning is that we have to have an end game for us, which is why I say we have to deal with speaking truth to power and ourselves right. about where we are. And where right. we are is that we better turn inward as opposed to be worrying yeah. about what's happening at the Federal Reserve. I don't give a damn what's happening at the Federal Reserve, actually. Right. And I know right. more about the Federal Reserve than most people. But right. we have got to look at, and you know, and I'm real concerned, Dr. Taylor, about the idea that we are talking to the people that read your book and read the papers of Dr. Curry and and mm -hmm. read uh, papers about reparations. And we've got people, the important people 
in our community. The masses of people in our community, they are just surrendering. And as long as they surrender, we don't have a chance at empowerment and creating a path of liberation for our children and our grandchildren. I have no, no, I, I agree. I agree completely. Um, and this is why I think it's it's important, you know, not not to find messiahs, but we certainly do need enlightened leadership. And I mean, you know, sisters like in the in in SMIC, where sisters had complete mm-hmm. a, a democratic participation and criticisms of all things, whether it was male, you know, uh, you know, the gender issue of male, uh, you know, uh, chauvinism, or whether it was racism, or whether it was, you know, dealing with, you know, with the realities of being mothers in the midst of revolution. You know, those are, are in, important, and I think, you know, whatever we do going forward, it has to be based on enlightened leadership. This is what Ty, this is what Howard Cruz was trying to convey. The crisis of the Negro intellectual was that the Negro intellectual would not lead black people in the realities of the American situation, and we continue to adopt, uh, um, I would say, foreign uh, 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 theories and foreign arguments to that were always misfit for the American situation, and I'm including Martin Luther King's embrace of Gandhi's Satyagra idea. That was misfit for black America, any more than, say, um, uh, Noble Drew Ali's Moorish Science Temple to tell black Americans that they were Moors, or the Honorable Elijah Mahan, who I have great respect for, but the idea that, you know, that we were Asiatic blacks or, say, some looking at Maulana Karenga with uh, Kwanzaa, you know, people will observe that next month. In, in, in case after case after case I just gave you, African-American, mm-hmm. especially male leadership, especially from the 60s, have tried to borrow on other people's criticisms and other people's arguments and histories. Even Marxism was misfit for the American situation because Marx tended to look at class, whereas in the American situation, race trumps class. You, you know, race is a category of class. And this is something the Marxists have always misunderstood, is that when you have a diversity, when you are in a heterogeneous social context, those, they, 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 whatever oppressions have it predated um, in a given society, that becomes the basis of those inequalities perpetually. So if you look in the prisons of Australia, who are in the prisons of Australia? The aborigines. That reflects that historical relationship. Look at who's in the prisons of America, the Africans and the Latinos and poor whites, which reflects their relationship to, you know, capitalism and this country. So mm-hmm. it seems to me that we need enlightened leadership, and we need enlightened leadership to direct our people towards recovering the power of civil society. Our civil society, if it's like you talked about the Saturday school programs, the Saturday teaching programs, this is the kind of stuff we can do now. And we don't need a moment of, um, you know, of of permission Mm -hmm. to do it. Everyone who Mm -hmm. can hear you and me talking needs to think about and move, get up and move, get up and move. Mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. what they know they can do. If you're an older woman, uh, woman and you can't get around like you used to, but, but you can make phone calls to somebody sometimes just to encourage people, or you can send a card, or, mm-hmm. or you, you know, you're someone who's a, you know, a lawyer or an engineer, you, know, you need to volunteer and make yourself available to teach the young people what you know about the law and what you mm-hmm. know about engineering. Jews, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is what I respect about Jews. Every Friday night for a lifetime, for a lifetime, Every observant Jew in this country, they meet on Friday night. 
They have Manashevich wine. They read their Torah. They say their prayer. They observe Shabbat. you got four generations of Jewish people in their families, the grandmother, the grandfather. If there's any greats, then there's the parents. There's the aunties and uncles, the cousins, and then, and then the rabbi. And you got all of those people that meet every Friday. See, if you got to see your relatives every Friday, you're not going to be up on a pole, and you're not going to be walking with your parents hanging down to your knees because there's an expectation in your community that, that this is unacceptable behavior. And I think I we, let that, we let that flow out of our community. I think when the crack epidemic hit, it devastated what was left of an already devastated people. And so I think we have to recover. Uh, this is what the movie Soul Food, for, for better or for worse, whatever people's criti- criti- critiques of that movie might be, that's what that movie was trying to tell black people. Get back at the table. Sit down mm-hmm. with your people. Look at your folk in the eyes. We did it on Thursday. What if we did that every Friday? What if we did it every week as a people? See, that's what we have to do. There are things we can do that can change this entire situation if we just do it. We yes. don't have to wait for yes. white people. We can ignore them. Yeah. We can afford to ignore white people completely. We don't need them. Mm-hmm. They need mm-hmm. us. We don't need you them. You know, one of the things that black parents are always criticized for is their engagement with schools. And I have been saying for 30 years on this on this broadcast that there is a way to do it. For the past five years, I have been saying, uh, yes, we have obligations and we have jobs and we come home and we're tired and we got to get dinner and get the kids to bed and we got to do whatever. But you hit the button uh, for your TV at 10 o'clock. And I'm right. suggesting that parents organize in their schools that you hit the button once a week on your smartphone or your computer and you get a free account at Blog Talk Radio or you get a free account at Ustream or you get a free account somewhere or conference calling, free account, free conference. And the 10 black parents in that school who want to mobilize to change the environment in which their children are being taught seven hours a day can happen. You don't have to go to a PTA meeting. You don't have to go out in the cold. You don't have to go to the school. That's right. And and I think people have to begin, uh, and I hate to use a cliche, but think out of the box in terms of alternative In other words, we need to revive black civil society. And when I say revive black civil society, I'm saying that is to mobilize everything that is shared public effort or common, the public good, the the public good, but that part of it that doesn't uh, come from taxes. So the government does a lot of public service work that's based on taxes. Civil society would be us mobilizing that part of our, our community that covers some of the same grounds, like taking care of the elderly, health care, education, like the Panthers did with sickle cell. That was civil society. The Black Panther yes. Party is one of our most successful civil society organizations of all times, the Breakfast Program. That's what I'm saying. We need to revive that, and we keep – the problem is we have a bunch of people who are really smart, but they're, they're using their intelligence in ways that aren't being put to the best use of our people. That don't and that's, that's what I find. Us. Right. And, and, and if you're writing books and you're writing treaties and you're being recognized by prominent institutions and prominent tributes, but your people are in ashes, your people are in rags and tatters, even the community where you come from is still desperate, then, then, then what is it worth? And so I think what we have to do as I speak, 
I'm, I'm involved in a group called the San Francisco Achievers. Here in San Francisco, there was a group of, of people who saw the desperation of young black boys not graduating from high school um, and, and being able to go to college. Throughout San Francisco Unified School District, there was less than 30 boys over the past several years of per year that they could find to give money away. They would just, this is a scholarship program that's just giving money away to black boys who have a 2.0 or 2. Uh, up to a 2.5 GPA. So we're not talking about the best and the brightest. We're talking about those who might be grinders, who might need a second chance, who might need a little extra encouragement, who may not have had the foundation they need and they're struggling but can do better. Like I was a C-plus student in high school. Nobody thought I was going to college. Nobody. I didn't have a father growing up. I was raised by a black woman who still lives in the projects in New York where I was raised. And yet there were people throughout the black community, the EEOC, the Boys and Girls Club, which was all black, the local churches, they joined together in our community to give us children hope and opportunity and dreams. And I ran with it. And I'm saying that we as a people need to take advantage of these Ferguson realities, this, this reality that we saw once in uh, Jenna in 08, we saw it in Katrina in 05, we saw it with Trayvon Martin in 10, we saw it with Oscar Grant in 08, we see it again with Trayvon Martin, we've seen it with Renisha McBride, we've seen it with Jordan Davis. How much more do we need now? to accept mm-hmm. the fact that America has told us that it does not, it does not want us. Yes. And it does not accept yes. us. So for me, I think it's important for us to turn into our own community civil society networks, the, the fraternities and the sororities. If all y'all doing is partying and throwing up your signs, what good is it beyond? And I know they do yeah. great and amazing work. But I'm saying they need to bind those sororities and fraternities together because they, like the black church, are something that we still have where people, highly educated, mobilized black people are already in place. I know they are doing amazing things, so I'm not saying they're not. I'm saying we all need to know about it because the efforts that they're mm-hmm. making are the Deltas are doing this, the mm-hmm. AKAs are doing this, Sigma Gamma Rose are doing this, the Kappas are doing this, you know, the Omegas are doing that. But what if they all... The way Du Bois tried to get the black school, the colleges together at one time under the Atlanta University Studies, Du Bois thought that all of the HBCUs could play some small part in a larger national study about black people. So Lincoln University would have one aspect. Howard would have another. Uh, Cheney might have another. Um, his Southern might have another. Grambling might have yet another. Um, you know, the schools like, you know, the schools in Texas, you know, Mississippi Valley State down in Mississippi could have another. And Du Bois thought that if all of these schools, you know, did what they do best in terms of a national study of, the, of health, education, uh, you know, all kinds of issues, you know, it would basically create a black think tank. And I think that's what mm-hmm. we need is those, that kind of alternative thinking. Black think tanks, we need them. I know there's a mm-hmm. few that exist. We need mm-hmm. and like the, the oldest is Nathan and Julia Hare's uh, Black Think Tank in San Francisco. Okay, right, 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 right. So, so for me, it's at the point where you and I, like I said about the San Francisco Achievers, I'm on the board of trustees, but I've also spoken to many of these young men repeatedly, and I've also mentored one of them. And, and what I'm saying is that's the kind of stuff we have to do. We can't wait for some silver bullet exactly. moment. Martin exactly. is not coming back. Malcolm is not coming back. Um, Ella is not coming back. Fanny Lou is not coming back. Gloria Richardson is in her 90s. So we're at the point now where a younger generation has already emerged to articulate and let us know it has arrived. What we can do, I think, is help 
these young people um, begin to develop their own critiques and to develop their own, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, particular uh, 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 perspectives as it relates to the, how they see themselves in, in this present context. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. And so, that's, so, so for me, uh, if your church is open only on Sunday, you need to leave that church. If your mosque is mm -hmm. only open for the Juma on Friday, then you should stop going to that mosque. If your church, if your if your temple is open only on Saturday, then there's something wrong with your temple. We need the churches to be open 24, not 24 seven, but reasonably. We need the churches to be reasonably open as often as they possibly can, exactly. serving our community. Exactly. And we need to have and younger I, ministers, I, I do, women ministers. I, I do. I do want to say that we need to be the managers of what happens out of our churches. If yes, you give your money, then you need to be you are an investor. That's right. And you get a and, and you get a voice. And hold leadership and hold leadership accountable, you know. Absolutely. Um where Absolutely. if your pastor stands up if your pastor stands up one Sunday and, and says these holes ain't loyal, then he shouldn't be able to get back up in your pulpit before he before he he gets down in sackcloth and ashes and begs everybody for, for forgiveness. Absolutely. Including the assessing the sisters. So that's Absolutely. the kind of accountability we need. Um, yeah. So, so, and and the know, thing is, how many of the men in our community, and I know Dr. Curry is going a little to the side saying, what's she going to say now? But how many men in our community are organizing in our neighborhoods, precinct by precinct, and meeting with the precinct captain and saying, it will not happen in this precinct. What are you doing? Right. And, and and see, the the problem with that is, you know, it, I mean, part of the problem with that is goes back to what Dr. Curry was talking about in terms of, you know, these efforts that we're making in this, in this time of crisis is, you know, if we're using the same old um, wine skins, um, mm -hmm. then it's difficult, you know, to put new wine in. And I think the Democratic Party, I don't mean to offend black folk who are overwhelmingly Democrat, but I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I, I don't belong to either one of these parties. And my, that's what my book is partly about. And my graduate dissertation at USC was about, was about black people trying to figure out an independent way between the Democrats and the Republican Party. So to organize at the precinct level, you know, just puts us back in the Democratic Party's, uh, you know, uh, domain. We, we need to break away from the Democratic Party the way Howard Washington and the, Demo and the black Democrats of Chicago did in 1982. Break away from the Democrats. We need to break away from the mindset that says that money is more important in the political organizing process than feet, than your mouth, than moving right. from door to door. I mean, I, right. was in, I was a chair of the campaign for New, Tomo uh, New Tomorrow, and I went all over this country trying to organize black people to Think about independent black politics with Ron right. Daniels. Right. And, right. And, Ronald, and Ronald Walters, I'll let you finish, Ronald Walters as well. Right. And mm -hmm. Ron Walters was our captain. He was the director of that campaign. And we spent more time trying to convince black people that we deserve to have our own party. Dr. Taylor, I'm going to go to some calls. Uh, we've okay. got a, a couple on the board. We only have a short time. 
Okay. Um, let, let, me just, let me just get this one quick thought in, and that is just to say that, you know, I, 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 with Harold Cruz, Cruz is saying in 1987, his book, Plural But Equal, people look on around the page 378 or so, he says that if we haven't, he said this in 87, if we haven't formed an independent party by the year 2000, black, poli- black politics will be uh, at a dead end, and that we basically are lost, um, because... Mm-hmm. That, that's the only means, because many people think of a black party as a revolutionary, but the truth is creating a party is very conservative because you're asking for a different way to buy into this system through normal politics. That's not revolution. That's conservative. Um, but because it's Absolutely. black, of course, it's perceived as, as militant and revolutionary, but it's actually a conservative idea. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And for those of you who do not know, you should get his book, uh, Black Nationalism in the United States, From Malcolm X to Barack Obama. It was published in 2011. Dr. James It just came out in paperback in October, so it's, it's new in paperback. <laughs> oh, great. Great. <laughs> I don't like paperback books. Uh, let's go to 857. Thank you for holding. I know you've been holding a long time. I respect you. Thank you for your call. 857. See, you done put the phone down and now you missed your chance. <laughs> Let's go to 937. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Hi, this is uh, Sister Zakia Sankara Jabbar, and I just wanted hey to now. thank you. Yes. Um, thanks so much for uh, taking my call. I'm glad I'm finally able to um, get on and listen and uh, engage with you all. I'm thankful for Facebook for uh, meeting uh, many of you, uh, especially my brother, Dr. Tommy Curry, and uh, Sister BJ. I've, I've looked at your page a number of times, and that's how I found out about this program. But okay. what I wanted to ask is um, – I'm a parent organizer, and I do a lot of work around the issue of the school-to-prison pipeline, and a lot of the work that um, I've been doing with Professor uh, Renelia Randall here in Ohio, you know, has really been dealing with, you know, changing policies, you know, at the local level, and we're working also at the state level. But we're at the point now where we're trying to really do base building, um, with the community and with parents and the youth uh, in particular. But my my problem and one of the things that we run into is dealing with mental blacks, I mean, Africans who mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. have bought in wholesale to white supremacist propaganda about the behaviors of our community and um, blaming the victim. And so I have a real issue, you know, with dealing with um, those kind of people in our community. And I don't know, I I just, I guess I'm looking for advice, you know, on how to really um, be a good organizer when dealing with that type of mentality that's really run rampant um, in the community. Dr. Taylor, you want to take that? Sure, sure. I, I would. I, my my attitude is simply: uh, you have to move on without those people. You you just can't. I mean, part of the, the what you're confronting is part of what is the problem in academia is a lot of these big, you know, ideas and theories that people are often constructing have the, had the power. What they've done best is demobilize black struggle. 
they 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 gotten us so busy bogged down arguing back and forth with them about what is the best and most enlightened and most morally redemptive way of you know bringing about social justice that ain't nobody organizing. So I'm saying right. to you that you lose valuable time of your life and of the children's life and of community life worrying about naysayers. I say lead in spite of those people. Go on without them. And because right. and, everybody don't want to be saved, and I think you have to exactly. organize around without them. Yeah, yeah. No, you I know, think... one of the things, Zakia, is that um, when I was a student organizer with the Fortune Society around prison reform, one of the things, one of the strategies that we used was to make sure that we were at prisons and jails on visiting day, catching people coming out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The parents... Mm-hmm the aunts and uncles, the wives, talking with them and recruiting them because they understand the problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would say that if you're working on uh, the prison industrial complex issues and the policies and you need people, you need to be able to organize the people that understand that, that's where you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues that we're running into, and 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 it's really troubling because you would think that organizing around stopping this school to prison pipeline for our children, especially you know in mm-hmm. particular, would be something universal that even the most conservative African yeah. could kind of get behind. Um, but one of the problems that we run into is that we have this uh, Black Christian Church monopoly. Oh um, Lord. That Receiving. It's, uh-huh. it's really horrible, has been receiving a lot of uh, grant monies and support from uh-huh. uh, the same oppressors who are uh, controlling the school system. And uh-huh. so uh, we've run into a number of uh, uphill battles, and we're still working. And, 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 and Professor Taylor, we are moving forward without these people, and we continue to agitate and bring this issue uh, up. And it's interesting because I've noticed that, you know, as we keep working, we have had a trickle in of people, you know, who are saying, well, I would like to know how I want to get involved. And it, I guess it's just a very frustrating um, and slow yeah, process I mean, with our children. Yeah, it hurts. Yeah, and, and, and I want to encourage you because it sounds to me that you're dealing with what, what is truly the, the problem of leadership. That, you know, sometimes you're in the room, you know, whether you're organizing at the church or in the community, uh, otherwise, you find yourself one or three or four or five people, you know, organizing and meeting that really seem to have, you know, passion for the cause. And I think you have to be encouraged anyway, because that's what leadership is. Leadership is being alone in the room when nobody else is there. But people, you know, tend to be hangers on or what they call them freeloaders who will join once you organize and mobilize people, right. you know, and so, so I, I just want you to keep doing, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm patronizing at all. I really encourage you to keep doing what you're doing because what you're doing is what I'm talking about. That That's the kind of civil society frontline work that needs to be done because you're yeah. impacting lives in ways that Barack Obama can't. You're touching lives the way Al Sharpton or even the great Cornell West can't uh, because you're, you're in the front lines. You're looking kids in the eyes. You're, you're trying to help turn this system around that is a demonic system. So I would encourage you to keep on with everything in you because our ancestors, they went up against the odds. We are an against the odds people. 
and, and and when you when you put that in your DNA, when you put that inside your soul, that no matter whether anybody shows up today or if a bunch of negative, you know, black commentary comes about our children, I'm fighting for my ancestors because my aunt, if Ella Baker gave up on 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 her generation, would we not be in a worse hell than we're in right now? If Dr. King and uh, Fannie Lou and, you know, Gloria Richardson and others gave up on, on, you know, 30 years ago, I mean, we're in hell now. We would be in worse hell than we're in right now. So I just want to say to you, plant the seeds now and be humble enough to allow uh, the ancestors, the gods, uh, God, whomever, to, you know, to give the increase. Um, because I think sometimes we who are active uh, get so preoccupied with needing to see victory in our lifetime that we get discouraged. But maybe you're just planting the seed for now, and somebody else will take it from where you leave it and keep it going. But there you go. are going to figure this thing out. Yeah, this has been wonderful advice, and and, and I'm going to let you guys uh, move on. But I just have one more thing. One of the one of the other issues that that is perplexing, you know, to me specifically here in Ohio and in this city where I live in particular, is that we are also up against a more organized, a more uh, funded uh, sort of um, nonviolent. Opposition quote unquote yeah. machine. And and mm-hmm. and I'm not saying, you know, um what I what, what I guess what I'm trying to say is is what Dr. Tommy Curry was talking about earlier is that, you know, we got all these people who wanna get out here and they wanna march and they wanna do all these different things and, and that's fine and that has its place. But tell me how is that gonna prevent the next black child from being murdered too? I mean, I live right in the community near where John Crawford was killed at a Walmart and the only response has been to march and 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 I have a problem with you know people who are in leadership positions in this community selling our children these wolf tickets and selling them down and there's no revolutionary nothing, organizing nothing happened at all. Yeah, yeah. nobody organizing for self defense and that's the, what I'm into pop- period this is the part of the problem of the black presidency independent of Barack Obama I don't want to mention his name cuz I'm not talking about him I'm talking about the idea, the idea that Ronald Walters and Amiri Baraka and Gary in 1972 and Jesse and Minister Farrakhan and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who didn't go, but certainly set Farrakhan, they came up with this idea of, 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 of either a balance of power strategy, a local supporting independent party strategy, or developing a black presidential party strategy. I teach at Berkeley and San Francisco, and in my class at Berkeley, we have, we've been talking about this. And so it's important, I think, for black black people to begin to think about these independent efforts and how we can forge, um, uh, you know, our, our, our efforts. But the, the black presidency has, in the meantime, I think, demobilized black criticism. So Cornel West and Tavis look like two madmen out there right now when Frederick Douglass spent most of his public career, once Lincoln was on the scene, condemning Lincoln. Right. Um, David Walker, you know, condemned Thomas Jefferson. Um, you move forward and you had the likes of um, Martin King talking to, jo- to Johnson and Kennedy. Um, and, and that kind of critical discourse has been undermined, I think, by the idea of the black presidency, independent of Obama. And that black people, because of the way we've been disciplined and socialized in this country to, look, to follow a the leader idea, that now that Barack Obama's in place, most of our critical organizing efforts have been put in abeyance or we've been, you know, been, been put to rest. We like, we're like chilling until Obama's out of office, and then we'll organize again. Some of our people are just sort of laying back, you know, waiting, assuming that Obama's going to take care of our black problems. Obama is 
probably the worst possible option for solving our problem as a black man, largely because he understands, and this is what people won't recognize, Obama understands this society is so thoroughly racist that every time he opens his mouth about it, he steps on the third rail. America is, and that's mm-hmm. what the cynicism, Obama understands America is too racist. In spite of his presence in the White House, America's too racist to take race on seriously, which is why he had his attorney general say right away in 08, America is cowards when it comes to having serious conversations about this topic. Mm-hmm. Yes. And cowardice works. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. And you, we have been following the work that you and Dr. Uh, Vernelia Randall, who is in Our Common Ground Voice, Uh, have been doing, and I think that one of the things as you go forward, you should be ensuring that the model that you you are creating gets shared with the black nation. Thank you, and that's a huge thing. That's one of the things that I find, too, in this work is that people won't share. You know, there's this information... And and, right. and it's sad because there's so there's so many problems you know that that need to be addressed in the community and mm-hmm. we should not be wasting time reinventing the mm-hmm. wheel so to speak if there's yeah. already a blueprint out there for mm-hmm. uh, for what we are trying to do so yes as, well, as I move forward um, in organizing and and I, I love the, the the fact that you guys brought up the the Saturday school piece because. Uh, my husband and I are going to be starting our own Saturday school, and I'm in the process of yeah. trying to develop a curriculum based That's on the book of Ancestor Dr. Amos Wilson's uh, Blueprint for Black Power. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that, um, you know, as as we move forward with that, I think that we'll begin to attract more people um, yeah. who want another avenue besides yeah. the empty marching and the empty right. holding up of our hands and empty right. rhetoric of nonviolence while right. our children continue to be killed, even yeah. at 12 years old, just three hours away right. in Cleveland. Well, I can tell you that this program organized parents in Palm Beach and um, and 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 um, Palm Beach and Dade County back in the 1980s, and brought a suit against the Palm Beach County School Board for its policies relative to the disproportionate uh, suspension and expulsion of black students. And in the wake of that suit the county school board changed its policy. Thank you so very much for your call. Wow, what a great conversation. We're going to go to 443. You're on the air. Thank you for holding. Um, And can you please make your comment or your question very brief? Okay. Good evening, Dr. Taylor. Good evening, DJ. Um, Question that I have is I'm just wondering do you think that it's important, um, Dr. Taylor, to educate our community um, about racism, white supremacy? I mean, that's some of the things that one of the core programs of the Black Panther Party was education. And I was wondering, you know, maybe, you know, I know you were talking about, you know, the, the limits or the limitations of, you know, our wow. black academics, but, you know, right. maybe... That's a big question, and we're not going to have time to to really get into the meat of the question. We're running out of time. We only got a few minutes. Uh, But next week, I'm going to put it on the table, and if you'll join us. um, And I I think that if you you think about the question 
and go back and listen in the archives to what Dr. Curry and Dr. Taylor have said, you'll find many gems and insightful responses to that question. I'm sorry that you that we got to you so late. That's okay. <laughs> no, because it's a very important it's a very but, important but, dialogue but, for us no, to have. Anyway, it, and let me get 15 go. seconds and say this real quick. That I, yeah, I agree that we should teach that. We should, but it should be a part of a larger network of a holistic approach Absolutely. to teaching about the spiritual. I think we have to get out of the negative in terms of focusing on white supremacy and get to the affirmative, yep. who we are yep. and what we believe and how in the American situation there's so much beauty of black experience. This goes back to my criticism earlier of all of the foreign ideas that have been used by our leaders instead of building on our own black ancestry, our southernness, our rural our sharecroppingness, our farming culture, our black soul heritage, yep. um, and build on Dr. that. James, Dr. James Lance Taylor, you have got to come back, and thank you yes, so ma'am. much for um, inspiring us, for giving us, uh, sharing with us your insight, and everybody is black nationalism, black nationalism. in the United States. Yes. From Malcolm X to Barack Obama. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Yes. We'll be right back here next Saturday night at 10 p.m. Thank you. So I'm asking you for the truth. I know the truth. I know enough. And so what I'm asking you is, what is your name? When you don't know... When you should have done, but you didn't. When you should have, but you don't. When you can't find, won't ask, can't say what you want. Who are you? When you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her that has diminished yourself. Just who are you? In the face of a truly racially deprived depraved society, what of the souls of black folks? Thank you so much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. A special thanks to our chatters in our chat room. Join us on Facebook, Tumblr, Pinterest, and our website at ourcommonground.com. Twitter, follow at Janice OCG. Have a great weekend. See you next week. Transforming Truth to Power. One broadcast at a time.